Welcome to the Green Investor Powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia and your guide on our journey together into what it means to be a green investor today, how to navigate the terrain of investing vehicles and platforms, and where this investing theme is headed. On this week's show, we get into who is behind setting the standards for ESG and sustainable investing for institutional investors with my conversation with Lisa Wall, the CEO of USCIF, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible for Investing. Plus, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is out with its latest report, and the forecast calls for even hotter temperatures than expected. And automakers are speeding up their electrification plans. We'll talk about who's charging ahead in the EV race. That's all coming up, but first, the ground rules. And as always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in the securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. Let's do the news. A United Nations-backed panel of climate scientists warned in its latest report that the world may be on track to warm by more than 3 degrees centigrade, twice the Paris Agreement target, with implications for how that would dramatically remake societies and life on planet Earth. The latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change comes after years of net-zero pledges by national governments, cities, businesses, and investors, and this latest installment delivers the loudest warning cry yet on the impact of greenhouse gas emissions hitting record levels. The focus of this report, the third release since August of 2021, is on humanity's vast arsenal of technology, know-how, and wealth that remain insufficiently deployed in efforts to ensure a livable climate in the future. We're going to link to that report in the show notes. Speaking of the UN, it also released its latest Financing for Sustainable Development report, put together by its interagency task force on financing for development. The report says that ESG investment criteria, that stands of course for environmental, social, and governance, are missing the true calling of ESG funds, which is environmental impact. It calls for more of these funds to direct investments into emerging markets who need it most and not to back into top ESG holdings like Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet, three of the most widely held ESG stocks in ESG funds. The report raises the age-old investor quandary of whether the purpose of ESG investing is to reduce risk and pursue profit or to help do good in the fight against global warming, and if both, in what order. The UN task force pointed out that sustainable funds may have even less exposure to emerging markets than non-sustainable funds, which it says correlates to the rise in greenwashing accusations against funds who may just be using the ESG label to improve their marketing. To wit, Morningstar removed 1,200 funds from its sustainable list after reviewing their portfolios earlier this year. We're going to link to that report also in the show notes. The European Commission adopted a technical standards list to be used by financial market participants when disclosing sustainably related information under the Sustainable Finance Disclosures Regulation, or SFDR. Under these rules, financial market participants must provide detailed information about how they tackle and reduce any possible negative impacts that their investments may have on the environment and society in general. Moreover, these new requirements will help to assess the sustainability performance of financial products. Compliance with sustainably related disclosures will contribute to strengthening investor protection and reduce what the EU calls greenwashing. 
Global methane emissions increased last year by the largest amount since measurements of the greenhouse gas began in 1983, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NOAA's preliminary analysis determined the concentration of methane floating in the atmosphere reached 17 parts per billion in 2021, surpassing the previous record high of 15.3 parts per billion set in 2020, even as the global pandemic slowed much of the world's economy. Unlike carbon dioxide, which can remain in the atmosphere for centuries, methane only lasts for roughly nine years. But the gas, which is the main component of natural gas and is released from fossil fuel extraction, landfills, and livestock farms, is far more potent at heating the planet than CO2. Over a 20-year period, methane traps about 80 times more heat than CO2 and about 25 times more over 100 years. That makes methane the second leading driver of global warming behind carbon dioxide, despite the fact that there's far less of it in the atmosphere compared to CO2. Los Angeles plans to electrify its fleet of more than 10,000 vehicles as part of an effort to become one of the first U.S. cities to rely on carbon-free energy by the year 2035. They're calling it the Electric Vehicle Master Plan, and it was unanimously approved by the LA City Council last week. The switch to electric vehicles will start at the city's largest departments of sanitation, recreation, and transportation. Honda Motor plans to spend 5 trillion yen or $40 billion on its push into electric vehicles over the next decade. The Japanese automaker says 30 EV models will be launched by the year 2030 with production volume of more than 2 million vehicles per year. EVs will make up around 40% of Honda's fleet by the end of the decade, and the company said last year it would phase out sales of gasoline-powered cars completely by the year 2040, becoming Japan's first automaker to publicly say so. Rental car giant Hertz just signed a deal with electric startup vehicle maker Polestar for 65,000 EVs. It's Hertz's second biggest EV deal, following an order late last year for 100,000 Teslas. For the car companies, it's a great opportunity for potential customers to test drive their vehicles. And for Hertz, it helps turn its yellow brand a little greener. Hertz is part of Hertz Global Holdings, which also owns other car rental companies, including Thrifty, Dollar, and Firefly. With all these electric vehicle ambitions, battery storage capacity has become a pretty valuable commodity. And in 2021, 3,508 megawatts of battery storage capacity, an amount more than double from the prior year, were added to the global market, according to a report by the research firm Wood Mackenzie and the American Clean Power Association, a trade industry group. The total includes grid-scale storage and smaller storage systems at homes and businesses. The rapid growth in battery storage has been the trend for years, rising from 257 megawatts in 2016, which seemed pretty big at the time, to more than 3,500 megawatts last year, an increase of more than 1,200%. Believe it or not, last year's growth could have been even bigger, but rising costs of raw materials like lithium and delays in international shipping may have held it back, according to the report. Looking into the climate, tech, and venture capital space, Switzerland's Climeworks said it has raised $650 million in what Bloomberg called the largest fundraising round yet for a carbon removal company. If you aren't familiar with Climeworks, you have to check out Climeworks.com. The Swiss company has created carbon capture technology called Direct Air Capture to capture carbon dioxide directly from the air. When the removed air is combined with underground storage, it allows the permanent removal of excess and legacy CO2 emissions, and Climeworks then turns the captured CO2 into a stone when it combines it with basalt rock. Individuals or businesses can sign up for subscriptions to Climeworks that allow you to buy carbon removal from the air. It's absolutely fascinating and worth a look. Check it out again at Climeworks.com. 
And there's a new atlas up in the great north. And despite all the worries about the impact of climate change, this one is being called an Atlas of Hope. It's an interactive map created with the blessing of indigenous peoples in Canada called the Climate Atlas of Canada. And it's really an interactive portal that shows nearly 700 different communities of First Nations, Inuit, and Matisse, and includes community-level data on expected temperature rise, expected changes in precipitation, and changes in agriculture like the lengthening of a frost-free season. The Atlas built by the Prairie Climate Center at the University of Winnipeg, along with Indigenous organizations, was first launched in 2018, but recently was reworked to focus on Indigenous experiences and is totally fascinating to explore. Check it out at climatlas.ca. Behind the investment industry's shift towards sustainable and responsible investing are some powerful organizations and nonprofit institutions that are trying to set the standards for ESG, socially responsible, and impact investing. USCIF, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment, is one of the original organizations that has been helping create these standards for asset managers and investment banks for over a decade. Lisa Wall is the CEO of USCIF, and she joins us today on The Green Investor. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Caleb. I know I gave a, a very broad 50,000 foot overview, but you're the CEO. You tell us what USSIF is really all about and what individual investors need to know about it. Sure. So USCIF really is about expanding and advancing the field of sustainable investment, uh, how an investor uses ESG, environmental, social, and governance information in the investment process. And we have members that range from asset owners to asset managers, financial advisors, consultants, community development, financial institutions, nonprofits, and big data and research providers, such as Bloomberg and MSCI, Sustainalytics, for example. Our members are very engaged. Many of them were the original leaders in the 70s and 80s and and kind of growing and starting the field of sustainable investment. And we try to grow the field, expand people's knowledge uh, through a series of strategies that include advancing the field through our member services, research, many sustainable investors and other investors know our every two-year trends report that looks at the size of the sustainable investment market and the trends in the market. We do a lot of education and training. I'll talk a little bit later, perhaps, about the courses that we have that are available to both retail and financial professionals as well. And we work a lot with policymakers to change the policy system in which the field operates. And then we also work with media like you to try to expand the public's knowledge of the field. We place a lot of opinion articles and how-to articles so that an investor, whether accredited or not, can look at an article and say, oh, this gives me more information on how I could think about gender lens investing or climate or, or diversity in the investment process. So we sort of talk about educate, inform, transform. That's kind of our key words for our strategy. Yeah, we're birds of a feather in that way and that we're educators as well. And you're a nonprofit or funded by a nonprofit. So who is funding that nonprofit? Your member, your member organizations or can anybody do that? In order to be a member, you have to be involved in the financial services industry in one way or the other. And you, and you need to either be doing sustainable investment or, or, or starting down the road to do it. Our budget is largely made up of member dues, but we also have several courses that have a registration fee We have had an annual conference for the last several years that have been canceled because of COVID, but we did do a virtual one last year and we'll be doing one in uh, New Mexico a little bit later this year in June. That provides some revenue for us. And then we get some foundation funding. So between all of those pieces, both earn revenue, membership dues, and some foundation funding, 
we have a fairly diversified budget. You know this better than I do, but when folks are trying to enter this investing theme for the first time, or maybe they're being recommended by their financial advisor, there is so much confusion about what is and what isn't and what is ESG and what is SRI. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an alphabet soup to a certain degree, but beyond that, it is measuring the measuring of the things that are the most important to investors. And there's been a lot of talk about, well, do these measurements or guidelines actually measure the impact of the bottom line to a lot of these companies that you that are being evaluated? Or do they measure the impact to climate itself? Where does USIF sit on that bench? Well, that's sort of the question about how does data get used? Does it get used by an investor to understand what the climate risk, for example, or the climate opportunity is for a company? Or what the company's impact on the world is vis-a-vis climate. And so that's what we're kind of calling materiality one and materiality 2.0. And that will be one of the plenaries at our conference, which is what is data meant to be used for and how does it get used? And what I would say is that certainly there are members of ours and in the financial services industry in general that are really looking at the bottom line of how does a particular issue impact a company's risks and opportunities. And I would also say that there are probably an equal number of people who are interested in that piece, but also very, very concerned about the impact of a company's practices on society as well. And I think that people are beginning to think more about that secondary piece in terms of what kind of data is important to an investor. And so I expect over the next few years that there will be more interest and push to get data that's not just looking at impact on companies, but companies' impact on society. We know that's become a more important theme among investors of really all ages, but especially younger investors who are maybe beginning their investing journey or starting to do that portfolio construction, and maybe they don't want fossil fuels, or maybe they don't want companies whose boards or executives they don't approve of in their portfolio. So there is there are great tools out there. Morningstar has them, MSCI has them, Sustainalytics, and we had Sheila Watamar on from Sustainalytics. There are some good tools out there, but to your point, how you use the tools is important Given your end game as an investor, is it are you concerned about impact or are you concerned about bottom line? So it really is how you want to look at that prism. Am I right? Yes, but also I take a little step back because I didn't come from the financial services world. And so many people that I know or knew and still know, probably like many of your friends, they don't know finance very much at all. And so for me, one of the first things to think about is how is your average student getting educated about finance and about just the difference between a stock and a bond or a stock and a mutual fund. And I feel that in this country, we have a very low rate of financial literacy, which is problematic no matter what kind of investing you're looking at. But I think there's uh, multiple things that a, a sort of retail investor can do to enter the field. One of the things that perhaps doesn't get talked about as much is community development banks and credit unions, which is where you can put your cash. And you know they're putting their investments in low income and underserved communities. And that's something that really any investor can do, even if they're not ready for the stock market or mutual funds or private equity bonds, etc. So we always like to talk about that because you can find a CDFI virtually anywhere in the country. So that's one thing an investor can look at. And then, you know, I think any investor that's going to invest in the market, in the stock market, really has to do their own due diligence about what kind of company they want to invest in, whether the fund they're investing in, is giving you the information you want about how they're utilizing ESG criteria. And you know we have a lot of guidebooks for both 
asset managers, asset owners, and retail investors on how to start making these decisions and where to find the data that you need to make those decisions. One of the questions we get asked so much by journalists is how do I explain this field to the average retail investor? You know, someone who might have $20,000 I want to put in a discretionary fund outside of their retirement that they might have at work. And so we created a 30-minute online free course that you can go to our website and access that would help a person who maybe is not familiar, that familiar with the financial markets in general, but really doesn't know anything about sustainable investment. And they can take that course for half an hour and learn a bit more about it. So that's an option as well. Good. We're going to link to that, folks, in the show notes. So definitely check that out. And I've taken a look, and it is super helpful. A lot of good terms and definitions and educational material in general on the USF site. So thank you for putting that there. I know everybody that looks at it appreciates it. Disclosure is a big deal. Uh, we know that their rules are maybe a little bit tougher in Europe than they are here in the U.S., but we're starting to see a ratcheting up of those rules. The SEC is proposing uh, making mandatory for companies to disclose their climate risk and make that very easy for investors to find. They recently put out a proposal. It's out for comment for a month or so. Did you think the SEC went far enough in what it's proposing, or do you think we need much tougher restrictions, rules, and guidelines here in the U.S. for U.S. companies and investors? Well, maybe I can take a step back and say in 2009, U.S. SIF sent a letter to the SEC signed by investors all over the world asking for mandatory and broad ESG disclosure. So that, I think, is 13 years ago. So it's been a long time coming. We got a few pieces of disclosure under the Obama administration. And the climate change disclosure is very much something that I would say the entire field has been looking for. You know, not just folks who are working on climate issues, but I would say most investors have been wanting something like this. It's 500 pages. We have not been able to review the entire document yet. I think what we would say, it's an incredibly important step forward. It will allow us to have comprehensive and comparable data at climate risk at companies, and that we think this is a very important first step on what we expect to be additional disclosure elements coming from the SEC over the next year. What is it about the U.S. that it seems like we're slower than other countries in terms of getting the guidelines around this? When you look at what's happening in Europe and the ECB and some other organizations there, they were quicker to it. Is it because industry is so entrenched here or is just that's the way that the slow gears of policymaking work here in the United States compared to other countries? It's hard to answer in the general because there have been so many different countries kind of doing some level of required sustainable finance regulation from Australia to London to England to New Zealand, and of course, the EU being the big actor. And it remains a conversation, even in the EU, very much under debate in terms of what is going to get counted in a green fund, for example. So I think the SEC, we change leadership of the SEC every time there's a new administration. And that in and of itself makes it an agency because it's also independent that may be slower to move than others in different parts of the world. And I think that disclosure, though, has now become such an imperative because if you've got large asset managers that are doing business in the US and in Europe, they're already having to respond to the requirements of the EU. And at some point, they want to be able to kind of have an even playing field where they're not having just different disclosures required in different parts of the world. And so I think the SEC catching up, at least on climate, which has been probably the number one area 
of focus by sustainable investors the last decade is a very important step forward. We expect uh, human capital management to come next. We've already sent in some initial comments on what we think needs to be in there, including a focus on disability as part of that. And then we expect later in the year, some kind of proposal or maybe early next year on how sustainable funds are named and what the expectations are about how you describe funds accurately. Where do you stand on on some of the largest asset managers in the world? And I'm talking about BlackRock and some of the others who say divestment is not the path to trying to create change in the industry and reduce global warming. We have to stay invested in these companies in order to make change. There's a big debate over that. Recently, we had Divest Harvard, the the student-led organization from Harvard University on the show, and they were able to convince Harvard to move towards divestment. But where do you stand in your organization on whether that's the path or, or is there no one path only to try to create change in the industry? Well, there's definitely not one path. And so Part of it is when you look at the issues of divestment, what we would say is if you're going to hold a company that you think does not have great quality standards, you should be engaging with them. You should be using your power as a shareholder to engage with them, both from having conversations with senior management to filing a resolution to ensuring that you vote on proxy statements. Those are all really important. And That is a strategy that some firms have taken, which is to stay in companies, stay invested in companies that they might not see as the highest achievers right now, but to try to push them to become higher achievers by engagement. I think there is a place and time for divestment in situations such as South Africa, which of course was the beginning really of this rollout of sustainable investment, you know, 40, 50 years ago. There are some situations where holding stocks in particular companies that are so egregious on human rights issues and others just becomes untenable. And then there's a whole nother area where you can really push a companies to make significant change. And one podcast you might want to have is on the really large number of shareholder resolutions that have moved forward in this season, which we've seen growth, particularly in environmental social issues the last couple of years. And that's a sign that investors are, are wanting to be more engaged and companies are, to some degree, open to that engagement. Listeners will remember that we did have engine number one and follow this on the show. They're both taking different paths as activist investors. So again, there, and then there's divest Harvard, which is divest or trying to get Harvard to divest outright from fossil fuel companies. So as you mentioned, a bunch of different paths out there for investors to choose from, but what's the industry missing in terms of either more education, more regulation, or a more concerted effort or concentrated effort among organizations like yours to push for a difference? What do you think needs to come next? Great question. A couple of areas that I think are really important. I think the education piece is very important. So as I mentioned, we have a retail course, but we also have a course on the fundamentals of sustainable and impact investment, which is meant for advisors, actually. But we get lots of different people taking it, fiduciaries, students, NGOs that want to engage in the financial services industry, so many others. Advisors still are the primary focus, but many other financial professionals take it. And and that's so that they can accelerate their entry into the field. The third course that we have is with the CFFP. It is the only designation on sustainable investment in the United States. And we're only in our second year, or maybe we're in the beginning of our third And that's an important driver because it is the only accreditation in the U.S. 
And so we're really hoping more folks will take that going forward. And it also gives potential clients the knowledge that this particular advisor has gone through a rigorous, rigorous process in order to say that they're an expert in sustainable investment. Education is really important. Retirement plans are really important. So you know that the DOL is putting out a final rule at some point in the next few months on the use of um, proxy voting, as well as using ESG criteria in retirement plans. Retirement plans, if you could get the majority of employee employer retirement plans to have one or more ESG options, you would see significant increase of inflows into funds that consider ESG criteria. We think that's really important. It's been a relatively slow mover. Uh, One piece that's very interesting is that the federal thrift plan for federal employees is the largest plan in in the world, actually, but it is the largest retirement plan in the United States. And they, in the summer, will be adding a mutual fund window to their core options. And that will include ESG options. So we think that's a really important opportunity for federal employees who oftentimes go to work for the federal government because they care about labor or they care about climate or they care about human rights to take a look at their retirement plan and go, oh, maybe I should move some money to this fund that's working to address labor rights, you know, something like that. So the retirement field's very important. And then I think another piece that's very important is I've been at USF for 15 years. The field has changed dramatically in that time. So I feel like I've had three different jobs. It's changed so much over time. One of the things that's happened in the field is what I call the siloing. So you've got the folks who are only on public markets. You've got folks who are only interested in the private markets. You've got folks who are only about bond funds. And so what I think is if we all spoke with a a more uniform voice about the importance of using all asset classes to drive for, including cash, to drive forward sustainable investment, it's a far more productive conversation than, well, if you're in the public markets, you may be less impactful than being a private equity investor because we know private equity is open really only to a relatively few number of Americans. And so I would like to see that conversation, which is how do all of us, our members come from all parts of the market, but mostly are engaged in the public markets, not entirely. And then some other membership groups like ours are all engaged in the private market. And I think we need to be talking with a unified voice about using the entire, the entirety of the financial markets to be able to drive forward better investments that are better for companies and better for society. You make a great point because the public equity markets are huge, but they're nothing compared to the bond market. And the private markets are also enormous, but they are a little bit shrouded in mystery because you have to be accredited. They are closed. There's either hedge funds or private equity funds, and you don't know until you know uh, what's going on inside those. And then to your other point, there's cash and there's other investment vehicles. All of them sort of need to at least be looking at the same prayer book, if not singing from it. Exactly. What's next for US? If, Lisa, what are your goals for the next three to five years? And if you guys are really achieving the kind of impact you want to see, what does that mean? What does that look like? So just from a kind of policy perspective, uh, one thing we created at the beginning of this administration was our set of policy objectives under this administration. And one of those was to create a White House office on sustainable finance and business, because we thought that would be a great place to bring together both companies that are very interested in looking at ESG issues and have been leading on it. And of course, investors um, who have also been leading on it. 
And we thought it would be great to have a place in the administration where all the different agencies and parts of the White House could come and learn more about what sustainable investment is. For example, we've met with multiple offices in the White House and federal agencies that work on issues that are really critical issues to our field to say, when you're thinking about these issues, do you think about investors as potential partners or potential experts? And oftentimes the answer is no. And so to be able to spend more time educating policymakers, particularly in an administration that is at least interested, uh, quite interested in workers' rights and climate and other important issues, being able to do more of that would be great. Uh, Getting a White House office on sustainable uh, finance and business would be wonderful. Taking uh, the changes that we're trying to get made at the DOL and ERISA and actually changing the law itself the law on ERISA so that we don't have a pendulum every time there's an administration change on retirement, that would be great. Being able to get enough funding to take our education work and be able to offer it for free so that more advisors and others uh, will get educated without that barrier of paying a fee, that would be wonderful. And then getting more media to understand this field and to write about it with substance and eloquence educated points of views, that's always something we like as well. And getting sustainable investment on more television shows, you know, more more news shows, more financial shows, where oftentimes it's sort of not present. Whereas the print media and radio has been a little bit more interested, I would say, than television has in general. And so that would be a great thing to see too, which is that every time, you know, there's a financial markets interview with an expert, at least one out of five times, you have someone who's a sustainable investment expert. That that would be a great thing to see in the next five years. Amen to that. You have a list. I'm sure that's just a, a portion of a very long list that you've created that's on a whiteboard somewhere. But in the in the years that you've been there, you've taken it very far. And we look forward to watching this continue to grow over the next few years. And I'd love to see you in an office in the White House. I'll come visit you there. And we're trying to do our part here by <laughs> okay. spreading the word. So good to talk to you. Lisa Wall, the CEO of USCIF. Thanks so much for joining The Green Investor. Thanks so much. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show when we get to dig a little bit deeper into fascinating facts and figures about green investing. And this week, we're going to stick with electric vehicles since we have new milestones to celebrate. According to Bloomberg NEF, a research team inside the mighty Bloomberg organization, we're on pace to see 20 million electric vehicles on global roads by June. There were only 1 million electric vehicles on roads in 2016. In the second half of 2022, almost 1 million new EVs a month will be added to the global fleet. That's about one every three seconds. Seconds. The majority of electric vehicles in the global fleet were sold in the past 18 months. But by the end of this year, Bloomberg NEF is expecting over 26 million plug-in vehicles on the road. Which countries are leading the charge? China accounts for 46% of the total sales to date, followed by Europe at 34%. North America is in third at 15%. And all the remaining countries combined account for just 5% of the global electric vehicle fleet. It's time to unpack the acronym where we get to decipher the alphabet soup that is green investing. And this week's acronym is the GCF. The Green Climate Fund, GCF, is the world's largest climate fund created following the Paris Agreement in 2016. Its mandate is to support developing countries to raise and realize their nationally determined contributions, NDC, another acronym there, those ambitions towards low emissions and climate resilient pathways. The fund invests across four transitions, built environment, energy and industry, human security, 
security, livelihoods and well-beings, and land use, forests, and ecosystems, employing a four-pronged approach, transformational planning and programming, catalyzing climate innovation, de-risking investment to mobilize finance at scale, and to mainstream climate risks and opportunities into investment decision-making to align finance with sustainable development. The GCF has projects all over the world around these themes in about 127 countries and has put about $2.3 billion to work so far. It wants to ramp up to $10 billion worth of investments in places like the Amazon, Micronesia, and Tanzania. Its board is made up of environmental and internal ministers from nations that were part of the Paris Accord, plus some private foundations and private sector members. Its executive director is Yannick Glamarek. He was appointed by the GCF board at his 22nd meeting in April of 2019. If you want to see big multinational money moving into climate investing, read the annual report of the GCF. We'll link to it in the show notes on investopedia.com slash the green investor podcast. Let's go out this week with a little trip into environmental history, and we're going to celebrate the birthday of Paul LaCour. LaCour was a wind pioneer from Denmark who built and tested a variety of wind electric turbines, as well as new approaches to blade design and energy storage via hydrogen production. His engineering and scientific work had a major influence on wind energy development and is one reason why Danish wind energy companies lead the world. Happy birthday, Paul. And that'll wrap up this edition of The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. We'll post this transcript to our conversation with Lisa Wool and links to all the reports we mentioned on investopedia.com slash the green investor podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. And if you haven't already, please rate, review and recommend us. This podcast is growing. Thanks to you. And we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. 